Welcome back to Everyman Academy. Quickly take your seats as we continue our discussion on Anna Karenina. Last episode, we met the cast of characters in Leo Tolstoy's epic novel. There's a few different dynamics, one of the main central themes being family, love, relationships. The narrative is mostly a juxtaposition between two different couples. You have Anna, the namesake of the book, and her affair with Vronsky, contrasted against Kitty and Levin, their love story, courtship, and eventual marriage. Steva and his relationship to Dolly, who's Kitty's older sister, kind of ties these two couples together. Where we left off last episode, Vronsky, after being swept off his feet by Anna, the married woman, he ventures back to St. Petersburg in remorseless pursuit for a married woman. For the first time, he catches sight of her husband, Alexei. So we get to meet this other character. Who is her husband? Having already been in the shoes of Vronsky and seeing how their love affair begins to unfold, I naturally was starting to think, hmm, this Alexei guy is kind of a jerk. The fascinating thing about this book, not only do we get an insider view of characters' thoughts and feelings, we also see how they think and feel about each other. It's an interesting consideration about how we can make assumptions, what someone else is going through based off how they act, look, and behave, the things they say and the things they don't say. Human beings can assume quite easily we know what someone else is thinking and feeling, but we could be way off. That seems to be kind of at the center of Anna and Alexei's relationship. So we discussed last time, Levin, the man of the country, so in love with Kitty, while she passed him aside for Vronsky, only to have her hopes dashed by a married woman, Anna. At the start of part two, we see Kitty is absolutely devastated. In fact, she's on a sickbed. Kitty's made even more uncomfortable by a slick young doctor that comes in. The man of science and medicine, informed by the idea of women's fragile nervous systems and sensibilities that was so common in this time. Kitty isn't sick with anything other than heartbreak. We know this. Her dad does too. They all figure out a solution. Why not go abroad? We see Kitty go to a German spa bath. This is a place for her to reflect to heal up and consider other things in life. She gets into religion. It's an interesting development in this character, jilted by the mustache-twiddling Vronsky. He's now moving about high society in St. Petersburg, making his presence known, hoping to have another run-in with Anna. And we see a contrast. A lot's changing at this time. You have a struggle between the way things were and the way things are becoming. Tradition versus progressive social ideas. In the unique setting of Russia, this change that's happening all over the Western world, are they themselves or just another England or France? So we hear about the different circles in St. Petersburg society. There's kind of the main group. It's closely tied to the politics of Anna's husband, Alexei. Then there's a smaller little clique. Old ladies. Unattractive, virtuous, pious men. It's a little circle close to Anna. And this is the one where her husband, Alexei, built his career. At the center of this little circle was this woman, Lydia Ivanova. Basically a bunch of unattractive, virtuous, pious women. Anna finds this little clique unbearable. She scoffs at their morality. Feels like they're putting on a show. Especially she doesn't like this Lydia Ivanova, who's at the center of it all. The third circle, though? Well, this was a world of balls, dinners, dazzling gowns. The cool kids. All the great luxurious parties. The queen bee is this... Betsy, she takes Anna under her wing, brought her into the circle so they could talk crap about Lydia Ivanova. Anna didn't want to hang out with them at first because they spend a lot of money, but after her trip to Moscow, she avoided her virtuous friends and went into high society because there she would encounter Vronsky. When she's out clubbing with the cool kids, every time she sees Vronsky, her soul lit up with animation. 
The same feeling that took hold of her the day at the railway carriage when she saw him for the first time. She could feel her joy shining in her eyes and pursing her lips into a smile when she saw him. She could not suppress this joy from manifesting itself. Not only was his pursuit of her not unpleasant, but it constituted the whole interest of her life. She's clearly becoming obsessed. Betsy's actually Vronsky's cousin. Seems like she's encouraging this love affair. Oh, there's gossip. Betsy in their little circle, talking about the whole situation. That Alexei, he thinks he's so smart. He's not so smart, they say. They think he's actually a fool. How dare he try to be so respectful. When the two cross paths again, inevitably, we see the flirtatious encounter. Anna tells Vronsky, you behaved badly. Very, very badly. But who caused me to behave like that? Vronsky quickly tells her he is feeling love for her. I've forbidden you to pronounce that ghastly word. And Anna quickly says, this must end, this flirtatiousness. Vronsky's insistent he loves her. Love. The reason I don't like that word is because it means too much to me, far more than you can understand. Her glance and the touch of her hand set him on fire. He kissed his palm in the place where she had touched it, happy in his knowledge that he had come closer to reaching his goal that evening than during the whole of the last two months. Anna, a married woman and a mother, she seems pretty interested too. Meanwhile, her husband, Alexei, at one of these high society gatherings, Alexei actually shows up. Alexei sees Anna, his wife, talking with Vronsky. He doesn't think there's anything improper about it, but he notices that everyone else is acting unusual. As we discussed last episode, he's not jealous. He thinks jealousy is an insult to her. He trusted her. He told himself it was necessary for him to do so. Suddenly, he's confronted with the possibility of his wife loving someone other than himself. He's constantly thinking about intellectual stuff, politics, his job. Even though he trusts her, he realizes he has to deal with this. Firstly, he's going to explain the significance of public opinion and decorum. She needs to watch her behavior and not be so flirtatious. Secondly, he must explain the religious significance of marriage. Thirdly, he must indicate the possible unhappiness for her son. And fourthly, indicate her own unhappiness. Alexei thinks this is a good idea and this is going to set everything right. When Alexei talks to Anna, she's like, Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And she's surprised at her capacity for lying. How simple and natural her words were and how convincing it seemed that she was just sleepy. Alexei lets his wife know he saw her flirting with Vronsky. She denies it all the way. She's like, you don't like it when I'm glum and don't like it when I'm in high spirits. I wasn't bored. Does that offend you? She's just like, oh, I was having a bit of fun. There's no problems here. There's nothing going on. She's denying it. She expects him to be jealous and he's not because he doesn't want to insult her. And yet she is insulted. She thinks he only cares about his position. She doesn't think he cares about her at all. I have a duty to you, to myself and to God, and a crime of this nature carries a heavy punishment. After these speeches don't really do much, and Anna continues to just deny, deny, deny. He pleads with her in his political fashion. She continues to deny, but at the end of the conversation, he says, I am your husband, and I love you. Anna's aggravated by the word love. She thought, love? Is he capable of love? If you hadn't heard that there was such a thing as love, he would never have used this word. He doesn't even know what love is. She doesn't believe him, despite the words he so clearly speaks. It seems she's ready to seal her fate. She's made up her mind, goes back into society again, visiting Princess Betsy, meeting Vronsky everywhere. Outwardly, everything was the same. It's like Alexei sees what's coming. It seems inevitable what's about to happen. 
And then in part two, chapter 10, dots on the page at the end of the chapter, this little break in the story. And then chapter 11 picks up after the deed's been done. We don't see in explicit detail what goes down when they do their dastardly deed. Some things are better left to the imagination. Tolstoy doesn't get all pornographic with us. We are left to use our imagination. We know they get it on, but that's all we need to know. We see that Vronsky's desire has now been satisfied. Post-hookup clarity kicks in. She felt sinful and guilty. She felt physically humiliated. They both feel like they've done something wrong. And because they're not too secretive about this, everyone knows about this dirty little secret. Society's not too happy about it. And Vronsky's mom expresses her disapproval. Everyone's kind of like, Vronsky, what are you doing here? He's like, whatever. He brushes off his family. He's too passionate about Anna. He's a military man, an officer, pretty proud and happy with himself. And he has another passion too, that's horse racing. His horse, Fru-Fru, it's his other passion. This big race is coming up. Anna promised to be there, but he hadn't seen her for three days. He's excited for the race. He feels a strong connection to Fru-Fru. Nevertheless, everyone keeps talking crap about his romance. He's gonna show them. This isn't just some quick affair. This is different. He loves her. In all his youth and vigor, he knows this is the real thing. He finally gets a chance to see Anna before the race, and oh no, who's there? Her son. He suddenly remembered the thing he always forgotten, which constituted the most agonizing aspect of the relationship with her, her son. They know the child is there, the one that's most likely to be hurt by all this. Vronsky can't even process it all and tries to push it all out of his head. The race is about to begin. Finally, when they meet, he's like, what's wrong? He's confused by Anna. There's something wrong. He can see it on her face. She has to spill the beans. She's pregnant. He realized that this crisis was what he wished for. Vronsky's like, okay, well, now we have to tell everyone. We have to get our love out in the open. Anna's like, it's not so easy. My husband, he has to process this news before the race. And they part without even figuring out what to do about it. When she thought about her son and his future relationship to a mother who had abandoned her father, she felt so appalled at what she had done, she could not think rationally. And like a woman, she was trying to reassure herself with false arguments and words so that everything could remain as before and it would be possible to forget the terrible question of what would happen to her son. Well, Vronsky hurries away. He has to get to the race and he's agitated and wrapped up in his own thoughts. Puts it all out of his mind. It's time to get on with the race. All of society is there watching. All the binoculars were trained on the brightly colored bunches of riders when they lined up. They're off! Their racing could be heard on all sides after the hush of anticipation. The excited and overly nervous Fru-Fru squandered the first moment and several horses started in front of her. Off they go. Fru-Fru herself markedly quickened her pace without any encouragement, having already understood what Vronsky was thinking. There was one obstacle left, and the most difficult one. If he could clear it ahead of the others, he would win. He and Fru-Fru had both seen the bank from far away. He and the horse both experienced a moment of doubt. He saw the uncertainty in the horse's ears and raised the whip, then immediately felt his fears were groundless. The horse knew it was needed. She increased her speed and rose up smoothly, just as he thought she would, pushing off from the ground and letting herself be carried by the momentum. Fru-Fru then effortlessly continued on with the race at the same pace without changing lead. Bravo, Vronsky, the voices of a cluster of people standing by this obstacle who we knew were from his regiment and his friends rounded in his ears. His position changed and he realized that something awful had happened. Vronsky was touching the ground with one leg and his horse now began to collapse onto that leg. 
He had barely any time to free his leg before she fell on one side with heavy gasps. After making vain attempts with her slender, perspiring neck to stand up, she lay there at his feet, trembling on the ground like a wounded bird. Vronsky's clumsy movement had broken her back. Still not understanding what had happened, Vronsky tugged at his horse's reins. She started quivering all over like a fish, making the saddle flaps creak, but since she was unable to lift her back, she immediately keeled over and fell over on one side. Pale, with his face contorted with passion and his lower jaw trembling, Vronsky kicked her in the stomach with his heel and started pulling on the reins again. But she did not budge, and with her nose buried in the ground, she just gazed at her master with her expressive eyes. It was a misfortune which was irreparable and that he himself had caused. And just like that, the twiddling mustache man with all the confidence of the world, bam, hits the ground hard. He knocked up Anna, blew the horse race, and she's not even going to leave him. And his family. Seems like things aren't going so good for old Vronsky. Tolstoy gives us the view of Anna watching the race after the fact. When she sees her man Vronsky collapse on the racetrack, the father of her unborn child, she loses her cool. Right in front of society, this has got to end. Alexei lets her know that she behaved improperly at the race. He reiterates, why can't you just compose yourself in front of society? And he can't help but assume that she is in love with him, but then backs off. Maybe I'm mistaken, he said, in which case I beg your forgiveness. And then she lays it down, drops a bomb. No, you are not mistaken, she said slowly. I am his mistress. I can't stand you. I'm afraid of you. I hate you. Alexei hears this. He doesn't know what to do with this. His voice starts to shake. So now what? Everything's out in the open. He still just asks her to compose herself in front of society and she can retain her position as his wife. He knows that if he divorces her, she could be ruined. Anna continues to feel powerless. Vronsky just wants her to leave. It's just not that simple. But what about our other couple? Well, Kitty... Returning from the German spa, she learned some important life lessons, yes indeed. But it's time to get back home, resume life. Levin, on the other hand, well, he's back at his country estate trying to figure out what to do with the peasants. Steva comes and visits. They go out shooting together. Levin's living a life of independence. He doesn't want to be seen as taking advantage of the labor of these peasants. During a time with all these new ideas about the structuring of society, in Russia, they abolish serfdom and they're talking about changing things. It's just not fair, is it, that they get all this privilege and the peasants have to work? He idealizes the peasants. Nevertheless, he gets super frustrated because they're lazy. They don't work as hard. He was also infuriated by their negligence, slovenness, drunkenness, and lying with their common work called for other qualities. He was their master and mediator. The peasants trusted him and would walk 25 miles to come and consult him. This is how things work in Levin's methodical mind. A man of great intellect trying to figure out how to balance morality and reality. There's theory and then there's practice. Levin doesn't just want to speak all of this moral truth. He wants to prove it. He gets out in the field and he works with the peasants. Time to cut some grass and he's got the scythe. You know, the big Russian tool that you see and the Soviet Union flag used to cut the grass and cut the wheat. You know, the thing the Grim Reaper carries around. Last episode, we talked about his messed up drunken brother. He's got another brother, a half brother. His name's Sergi. Sergi comes to visit. He's much more of an intellectual mind. They talk about these ideas. They don't always see eye to eye. Levin kind of wants to prove to him. He means what he says. The peasant's snickering at him after all. 
He realizes quickly this is hot, tiring work. In a wonderful scene, he mows the entire field with the peasants, rallies the troops. He's so excited about a job well done. He comes home, he's proud of himself. And we, the reader, experience the pleasure of a hard day's work. Nevertheless, he's conflicted about the peasants. On one hand, he wants to give them more rights. But on the other hand, he's nervous about his ability to cultivate the land and make money. What to do with the peasants? It's almost as if they're perfectly comfortable with their position in life. Levin sits back and watches them all amongst each other. They're really happy and he envies this type of living. And he wants to lead a life of hard work that's pure and delightful and shared. He sees that in the peasants. He's reflecting on all this and all of a sudden, carriage approaching in the distance. Oh my goodness, it's Kitty. He sees his true love once again and his passion is ignited. He loves her and this is what he must do with his life. Well, Kitty is actually off to see her sister, Dolly. Steva's still out there living the life of a bachelor. His playboy ways. He sends his wife, Dolly, off to the country to save money. Levin knows that Dolly's there. Even though he loves Kitty, his passions are reignited. He's embarrassed. He knows what went down. He knows that she and Vronsky aren't a thing. He might have a chance, but he has to grovel again. Wear his heart on his sleeve. What if he gets turned down again? At the end of part three, all these questions hang in the balance. To take his mind off it, he goes shooting with a friend considering what to do with the peasants. He puts his mind into his work to forget about his love for Kitty. Thinks about these ideas, how to cultivate the land. It's all hanging in the balance. When suddenly, Nikolai shows up. You know, the drunken, debaucherous brother. The one that's sick and ill. He shows up at Levin's house. Levin had swore to take care of his brother and he lets him in. Well, things get political again. They get into a little argument. Nikolai's just pointing out... You know, you're just oppressing them. You think you're one of them because you work with them? Nikolai's like a total communist. He's always going to see Levin's position as oppressive. Even if he does go out and work in the fields, he's had enough. It's time for you to leave, Nikolai. Nikolai goes on his way. He sees how sick his brother is, and he knows he's going to die pretty soon. And then it hits him. If there isn't enough going on for poor Levin, he has an existential crisis. Death. The inevitable end of everything confronted him for the first time with irresistible force. And this death, which was there in his beloved brother, groaning in his sleep and from force of habit, indiscriminately invoking first God and then the devil, was not nearly as remote as it had seemed to him before. It was in him too. He could feel it. If not today, then tomorrow. And if not tomorrow, then in 30 years, I'm working. I want to achieve something, but I forget that it will all end, that there is death. Well, my goodness. Poor sad soul. And suddenly he realizes he has to bide his time. How is he going to get through life when he just dies? He had to get through life somehow until death arrived. Darkness smothered everything for him. But precisely because of this darkness, he felt that the only guiding thread in the darkness was his work. And he grasped it and held on with all his might. That's the end of part three. We've covered parts one, two, and three so far. Where are we now? Well, we've seen Levin, his moral and personal development, his identity. Is he one of the aristocracy? Is he one of the peasants? Will he live his life alone or will he marry someone? He's in love with Kitty, but he's not able to bring himself to propose again. It's just too much that he's been through. Then on the other hand, we have Vronsky and Anna. Their love affair in the aftermath. What are they going to do with it? 
Vronsky's lost his poor horse, Fru-Fru. Anna is carrying Vronsky's child, and yet she can't leave Alexei, what it would do to her in society. Then there's Alexei. He's seen as the bad guy in all this. But we know, through an insider look, he's doing the best he can with what he's given. He's mastering his emotion by using his brain. His emotions are very strong, but he's suppressing it intellectually. He's doing his best to logically express love by reserving jealousy. But Anna, on the outside looking in, sees this cold, callous jerk that doesn't love her. It seems like a big misunderstanding. And that's where we'll leave things until next time, with the continuation of these characters' story, where it leads in the next five parts of this epic journey. There's so much to take in. There's so much to absorb. We will continue to try to make sense of it all on next episode of Everyman Academy. Thank you again for joining me for daily updates. Why don't you check me out on Twitter? That's at Everyman Academy. Just another place to share this journey of self-education by reading the classics. If you're one of the humble few that's out there listening, it is a great honor that I get to spend this time with you. So for now, class is in recess. <laughs>